There we go. Okay. Well, today we begin Genesis chapter 49. And uh, which means, if my math is right, last week we were in chapter 47. Uh, 48. <laughs> Excuse me. I looked down here and I saw 47 on my page and just instinctively said 47. Uh, but last week, we actually covered a good deal of chapter 48 last week. We picked it up in verse 5 and talked pretty much about the rest of the chapter. And, uh, and today, we're, and that, that was, as we said, the second of the three major faith events in the life of Jacob uh, at the close of his life. And uh, today we want to look at chap- begin looking at chapter 49, which is the third major faith event in the life of Jacob uh, at the close of his life. And that is the blessing of his 12, uh, 12 sons born to him, not including the adopted sons. Uh, but quickly, by way of review, uh, last week in chapter 48, what were we talking about? Okay. Uh, it was the blessing of Joseph's two sons, and they were, they were blessed. But before they were blessed, what happened? Okay, they were adopted. They were adopted in order that they might be blessed. <laughs> they, were, they were included, they were brought into the family, so to speak, into the direct descendants of Jacob uh, in order that he might extend to them the blessing that he was also going to extend to his other sons. What else? Okay, why did he do that? Okay, so he was really putting the, giving the greater blessing to the younger son, Ephraim, rather than to Manasseh, the firstborn. What's the significance of that? Okay, okay. And, but as we go through the story of the patriarchs, that we call that principle, the principle of primogeniture. Uh, as we go through the story of the patriarchs, that's, that principle of primogeniture is repeatedly set aside or overruled or disregarded. What do we learn from that? Okay. So they have a plan that this is how they're going to do it, but we're set to the side because his blessing is different. Okay. Yeah. God's values, God's what God esteems, uh, is different than what we some sometimes, oftentimes different than what we esteem and what we value, and uh, and so God uh, regards the heart rather than the outward appearance. He says in the selection of David, which is another case of, of uh, primogeniture being set aside where David was selected as king rather than one of his older brothers. And, and the Lord told Samuel at that point, the reason is because God looks on the, outward, God looks on the inward appearance or on the inward things, uh, whereas God looks on, or man looks on the outward appearance. And so, so that's one of the things we see that repeatedly in the story of the patriarchs, that, that the, the oldest son is set aside. Uh, uh, um, Ishmael is set aside for Isaac and Esau is set aside for Jacob. And as we'll see today, Reuben is set aside for Joseph. And in the case that we looked at last week, uh, Manasseh is set aside. He's not totally set aside, but he receives the lesser of the two blessings uh, from Ephraim. What else? Anything else that sticks out to you from last week's lesson? Mentioned the very last part of the chapter of the verse, which he says, uh, "The lamb which I took uh, from the 
Oh, yes. I don't remember that. Well, we might think that, of course, in this case, it, it appears to be inspired prophecy or inspired words. So uh, there are actually a, a couple possible explanations for that, and we just simply didn't get to that last week. Uh, one of them is that, uh, and, and I, I find this, particularly in light of the things we're going to see today, I find this uh, particular explanation not very satisfactory. But one suggestion is that, uh, is that, he, uh, that, that Jacob is referring to the land that was taken from, the, from Shechem when, uh, when Simeon and Levi went in and with their sword they you know, overthrew the city of Shechem, etc., and that that Jacob is is in some sense referring back to that. I think that's a pretty unlikely explanation, uh, given the things we're going to see today. Uh, the other possibility, and I think that this is the, probably the most reasonable explanation, is that is that Jacob is speaking prophetically. <laughs> so really, what this is is this is a reference to the conquest of Canaan in the future, and and that's what he's referring to, and the. And the uh, reference to the Amorite there, the, the, the word of the name Amorite uh, oftentimes is used, even though it was a specific tribe within the land of Canaan, oftentimes is used to describe all the Canaanites. So it's very possibly here a just simply a prophetic statement that he's making that this is what's going to happen in the land of, or in the time of conquest. And, and that's the explanation that seems most satisfactory to me. I thought maybe he was pointing out that there's an extra portion going to be given, but it's not coming out of the normal inheritance. But even that, I don't know why that would be yeah. such an issue. And even I, if it was that. Yeah, and I wouldn't know what that would be a reference to. Yeah. 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 Anything else from last week you want to mention before we go on? Uh, your discussion about Psalm 23 and after the shepherd. Yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, to think of Jacob at this point in his life thinking of God in that way to me is just so so cool, so awesome. Uh, Jacob seeing God as his shepherd and thinking of it in terms of what is a shepherd as described in Psalm 23 is pretty cool. Well, let's pick up in chapter 49 then. He has, he has uh, blessed, he has adopted and blessed the sons of Joseph, and we will take a little bit more time uh, this morning just to talk about the fulfillment of those prophecies that he made towards Ephraim and Manasseh, and we'll, we'll take some, a little bit of time just to talk about that. But let's go ahead and read uh, the passage for today. Uh, I'd like to look at the first, uh, if, as the Lord permits, I'd like to look at the first 15 verses of chapter 49. It begins in verse 1, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares to rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. 
His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore and he shall be a haven for ships and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Okay. Well, obviously there's a lot to think about and explain in that passage. But I did want to just go back uh, briefly uh, since we're going to be talking today about the things that are going to happen in the future with these various sons of Jacob. And we'll get more into the order of the sons and that sort of thing here in a moment. But before we do that, since that's the kind of thing we're going to be talking about, I'd like to just take a moment and go back and think about the promises that were made to Ephraim and Manasseh that basically Jacob just blessed them and he gave a greater blessing to Ephraim than he did to Manasseh. But he said they were both going to be great and they were both going to be blessed. And just uh, so you'll know kind of the outcome of those things, uh, the, the fact is uh, that Ephraim does receive a portion of land, as do the other tribes in Israel. It becomes a tribe in and of itself, as does Manasseh. And it receives a portion of land. And the portion of land that Ephraim, receiving the greater blessing of Jacob, that Ephraim received was really a, a, a very strategic plot of ground. It was in what we think of later as part of the northern kingdom, but it included, uh, from the very outset, it included Shechem, the city we were very familiar with, but it also included the city of Shiloh. And Shiloh, of course, is the place where the, where the uh, uh, tabernacle was first set up after the conquest or during the conquest when the children of Israel came into Canaan and they needed to set up the tabernacle. They sent it up at Shiloh. So obviously, uh, Ephraim is kind of at the heart or the center of the nation of Israel from the very outset once they are back in the land of Canaan. Uh, when the kingdom divided, uh, and you're familiar with that story, of course, after Solomon's death, and then there was the, the, uh, the discussion with Rehoboam as to how he was going to rule, and, and, and uh, the ten northern tribes weren't satisfied with his answer, and so they went off and they formed their own nation, so to speak. So you have the division of the kingdom into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, the most influential tribe in the northern kingdom, was the tribe of Ephraim. One reason for that was Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom, and his descendants all come from the tribe of Ephraim. So Ephraim becomes really the most influential tribe among the ten northern tribes. And, uh, and two of the leading figures, one of them we've already mentioned, Jeroboam, in the history of Israel come from the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, the other one was Joshua. Joshua was an Ephraimite. <clears throat> so so you, can just, you can see there the fulfillment of the prophecy or the blessing that Jacob gave to Ephraim and Ephraim's subsequent success and influence. And actually... Ephraim becomes the name by which the northern kingdom is often referred. That's how influential and dominant it was in the northern kingdom. Okay. Manasseh uh, also became very great. Uh, by the time of the conquest, they were actually 60% more numerous than Ephraim. So they actually had more people than Ephraim had at the time of the conquest. Over a period of time, that changes. But initially, they were more numerous even than Ephraim. They were a very powerful, warlike tribe, and they're one of the one of the tribes that that had a divided possession. A part of the main part of their possession was on the east of the Jordan, and a small part of their possession was on the west of the Jordan. And the part that was to the east of the Jordan was a particularly difficult area to conquer. And Manasseh very successfully conquered it. And I, as I recall, there's no actual record of them having any defeats in any of their struggles to conquer uh, their land. So they were apparently a very powerful warlike tribe. Four of the 15 judges in the book of Judges come from the tribe of Manasseh. Uh, and, and Manasseh becomes, in the, in the division of the kingdom, when, uh, when the southern and northern kingdom divide, Manasseh, like Ephraim, becomes very influential. Not as influential as Ephraim, but becomes very influential in the northern kingdom. So we can see 
that Jacob's prophecies about Ephraim and his blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh uh, really do find fulfillment in the in the period of the conquest of Canaan and then the subsequent uh, kingdoms over the next uh, several millennia, several uh, centuries. So uh, that's just some information to help you see how those things were filled out, okay, or completed. Uh, now we come today in chapter 49. We come to the uh, what is referred to as the blessings of the twelve sons, and as we mentioned last week, they are uh, they really are prophetic. Uh, they're not really speaking so much of the ten sons themselves, as he says here in the passage, uh, the things that are going to happen in the days that come or in the last days. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so these are. Uh, these are prophecies, but they're referred to as blessings. The narrator in verse 28 calls them the blessings of the 12 sons. And uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I just want to point out some things before we get into the nitty gritty of it. I want to point out a couple things. One is, uh, one is you'll notice probably in most translations, you'll notice that the text is formatted a little differently than it is in in most of the rest of the Bible because it's poetry. This is uh, this whole uh, blessing all the way through of the 12 sons is all given as a as a poem or as a hymn, if you will. Okay. now, whether or not Jacob originally spoke it in that format or or in that poetic form or whether the narrator just records it. Uh, in that way, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I, <clears throat> I have no idea. Uh, I assume that he did, in fact, speak it in this form, uh, which would indicate if he did, that he obviously gave a great deal of thought to it before he, before he uttered these things. Okay, but but it is poetic, and when we think of poetry, what is the purpose of something being communicated in a poetic form? Okay. It, okay. It facilitates memory. It facilitates remembering things. That's one of the reasons why we sing the hymns and the choruses that we sing, uh, because they help us remember truths. And so many times things are 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 uh, are written in the genre of poetry as opposed to just simple, straightforward prose or whatever. They're written in poetry in order to facilitate us remembering these truths or these things. Why else are things committed to poetry? Sometimes it conveys the feeling and the emotion. Okay. Okay, so it it helps us get an emotional contact or or connection with the truth. You know. Uh, we could have somebody like me describe a sunset to you, okay? And if I describe the sunset to you, I could give you the facts and I could analyze it. But you really don't want me to describe a sunset to you in poetic form because it would be ugly. <laughs> okay? But there are some, probably even some here in this classroom, who could do that, who could describe a sunset to you in poetic form. And if they did so, if the two of us communicated uh, the idea of a sunset, when you walked away from listening to me describe it, you would have maybe the facts, okay? And you would know them intellectually. But if somebody was gifted in poetry described the same sunset to you, you would know the facts. You might not analyze things quite as carefully, but you would have a sense of wonder and awe and an emotional connection with the sunset, right? So that's one of the advantages of poetry. So these are the two things that are going on here as, as this passage records for us uh, these uh, prophecies for us in pro and blessings in prophetic form. Is One is to help us remember them. And the second is to help, help us have some emotional connection with them. To feel the awe of, of what's communicated. Now, unfortunately, none of us here can read, none that I know of here, can read Hebrew. So we miss a lot of the sense of the poem, okay? But it is nevertheless in poetic form. And even, even in English, it comes across a bit poetic, uh, even though we don't get it as, as much as we would if, it were in, if we could read Hebrew. Uh, but because something is 
written in poetry, it has to be read differently. You read poetry differently than you read prose or a, you know an epistle to the Romans or whatever. You know, you you read it differently because a, a poem. What? How does a poem communicate its ideas? What does it use to communicate ideas? Okay, it uses rhythm. What else? Okay, it uses allusions and metaphors and things like that. So you don't take everything exactly literally with a poem, okay? Uh, you have to understand that, 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 uh, that it's using uh, picture, word pictures and metaphors and things like that to communicate the truth that it's communicating. So we take the truth that it's communicating literally, but we don't take every word literally because many times there are these allusions and allegories and metaphors and all these various different things that you see in poetry that you wouldn't necessarily see in, uh, in, in most prose. So, and so those are some of the things to consider as we approach this book. Now, in addition to it being poetry, and as we see, the narrator calls it a blessing, but we, it's very obvious it's also prophetic. Okay? It's, he's talking about, as he says here in verse... Uh, uh, verse 1, he says that I may tell you the things that will befall you in the days to come. So, it's, so the, the main thrust of what he's talking about here is, is the future. So this is prophecy. Okay? And, and when we're dealing with prophecy, we need to understand kind of how prophecy works. When someone is, something's being communicated prophetically, generally... What you're seeing prophetically is just kind of the highlights. You're seeing kind of the main things that are going to happen. And you don't necessarily see all the minute details and explanation of how these things come about. Okay? So oftentimes when we're looking prophetically at things, we're only seeing part of the picture. And somebody has used the analogy, and I think it's a great analogy, that looking at the future from prophetic point of view is like standing somewhere and looking at a mountain range. Okay? So you're looking off in a distance at a mountain range and you can see all the various mountain peaks, but that's all you see. You can't see all the things in between the mountain peaks. When I was uh, much younger and more virile and strong, I lived in Colorado Springs and from Colorado Springs you'd look up and of course for those of you familiar with Colorado Springs, you have this one dominant thing on the on the horizon there on the west, and that's Pikes Peak. You have a whole mountain range there, but Pikes Peak is the dominant feature there. Okay. Well, what most people don't think about is that right in front of Pikes Peak, as obvious as is Pikes Peak, is Mount Manitou. It stands, and it just kind of blends into Pikes Peak, and you don't see that, or you don't notice it, or you may notice it, but it doesn't stand out. Okay. But if you're going to climb Pikes Peak, which I have done many times. You have to first climb Mount Manitou, okay? And when you climb Mount Manitou, by the time after a couple hours of climbing and you finally got to the top of Mount Manitou, you think you've accomplished something and you're well on your way to Pikes Peak because it's just right there in front of Pikes Peak. And it's only at that point that you realize you're going to come down off Mount Manitou and you're going to walk for miles and miles and miles and miles of valleys and little mountains and things before you ever get to the foot of Pikes Peak to actually begin your ascent of Pikes Peak. And it gets a little discouraging after a while because you think, am I ever going to get to the mountain I want to climb? Okay. Well, that's kind of the way prophecy is. You can see the peaks and you don't see everything that lies in between. So when Jacob says here, that I'm going to tell you about what will befall you in the days to come. And, and a, uh, actually, a literal translation of that would be in the last days. Okay. Now, when we think of that, that he's going to tell them what's going to happen in the last days, we tend to think of that from our perspective sitting here in the 21st century. Okay. But Jacob is speaking from his perspective 2,000, nearly 2,000 years B.C. Okay. So... To Jacob, what he understands to be the last days is different than what we understand to be the last days. One of the things we need to understand about the phrase the last days is that it doesn't refer necessarily, in fact, most times doesn't refer to a narrow piece of time. Okay. 
So, for example, when when I refer to the last days, I say such and such is going to be happening in the last days. What kind of things might I refer to that could be included in the last days? Okay. Okay. All these natural disasters. Okay. What else? Second coming of Christ, when Christ comes to earth and actually comes and physically uh, sets feet on the earth. Okay. What else? Excuse me? Okay. Judgment, which is probably associated with these coming on the last, the second coming of Christ. What else? Come on, some of you premillennials have got to speak up here. The rapture, okay. I may mess into some of you may not be into the rapture, but but the rapture, okay. What else? The tribulation, okay. How long is that? Seven years, okay. If if you understand things from a premillennial point of view, okay. Uh, what else? The antichrist, okay. What else? You could be. Pardon? Armageddon, okay. What else? You could be talking about. Given the context of and your explanation, you could be talking about your own retirement and your own death, or you could be talking about the kingdom of heaven that's set up by Christ after all these things everybody else is talking about. Okay, okay. Well, let's just talk about it prophetically and not think about ourselves, but think about it in the prophetic biblical context. So let's narrow it down in that way. Using his definition. We're not on his, we're on ours. Okay. We'll get to his. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to his in a minute. Okay. What I'm trying, and, and of course, y'all are leaving out the big one. The millennial reign of Christ, right? Which is how long? thousand years, okay? So when we speak of the last days, we're not speaking of a few days necessarily. We're speaking of a whole epoch, okay? Well, when Jacob speaks of the last days, he's doing the same thing. But he's speaking of it 4,000 years earlier than we are, okay? So when he's speaking of the last days, and this becomes clear as we go through these prophecies, He's speaking of the whole period of time that apparently, from the context that we read and we see the things he describes, begins with the conquest of Canaan and goes all the way through the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. Okay. So it's this wide range of things that are, that are included. But from Jacob's perspective, it's the last days. It's way off in the future to him. He knows, if he's listened to his grandfather Abraham, he knows that it's at least 400 years in the future okay, that these things will begin to happen. So, from his perspective, when he says the things that are going to be happening in the last days, don't think that he means the last days as you and I think of the last days. Understand that he, understand that he sees them as he perceives the last days, which begins with the conquest. Because to the Jew... The, the, the conquest of Canaan and the establishment of the whole Messianic kingdom, that's all, from Jacob's point of view, is all blended together into one. It only becomes clear later as Israel begins to conquer the kingdom that the Messianic kingdom is somewhere off distant in the future. Okay? That, it, that the conquest is not really part of the Messianic kingdom as we think of it. Okay? And, and that confusion about the future persists all the way through the Old Testament. Even up into the New Testament. So that when on the day that we are commemorating today, Palm Sunday, Jesus comes down into Jerusalem, the people are expecting him to do what? To establish the Messianic kingdom. But even at that point, that's not what he's doing at that point. He's doing the things that are necessary, preparation for the Messianic kingdom, but the Messianic kingdom isn't, isn't yet to be set up. So, this is what happens when we look at prophecy. We see these high points and we don't see all the things in between and so we don't have a complete picture. And this is what Jacob is doing. And so as we look at this, there will be things about this passage that are that, that leave some ambiguity in our mind. We don't understand how all this is going to work out because we're still looking prophetically at things. And particularly, Jacob does. We know, by God's grace, we know more than even Jacob knew at this time. So he summons his sons together. This would be his 12 sons that are actually born to him. And he summons the 12 sons together in order to tell them the things that will befall them or the things that are going to happen to their descendants in the last days. Okay. And he begins... Uh, uh, oh, I should mention this too, That and this is pretty obvious as we've read the passage and we're only going to cover about the first half of the blessings today. 
that it calls them blessings. But in some cases, in some of these individuals, what does it really kind of look like? It doesn't look like a blessing, does it? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, okay, etc. So for some of them, it's really kind of an anti-blessing. <laughs> kind of a blessing, kind of like the blessing that Isaac gave to Esau after Jacob stole the good one and left the bad one for Esau. Okay, well, uh, we have some here that we might think of as anti-blessings or even some would refer to as a curse. Okay, and we have some of those. So even though they're called blessings in the individual cases, some of them really have this kind of anti-blessing dimension to them. But it is important for us to understand that even for the individuals such as Reuben or Simeon or Levi or Issachar, that even though their blessing appears to be an anti-blessing to them as an individual tribe, it is for the nation as a whole still a blessing. It is a blessing to the nation as a whole that the tribe of Reuben does not end up as the tribe with the scepter. That's a blessing to the nation of Israel because of the characteristic that is seen in Reuben. Similarly, with Simeon and Levi, their anger and their wrath disqualifies the, disqualifies the tribe, those tribes, uh, for their inheritance and for any preeminence in the, in the nation because God wants the kind of influence that Judah will provide. So even the anti-blessings are a blessing in the sense of the whole nation. Okay? And that's important to keep in mind. So he begins with Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn. And he describes Reuben initially as being uh, his might and the beginning of his strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And his, uh, the, the picture you get here is that Reuben starts out really great. Okay. He's, he's really the, he's the epitome of Jacob in his youth, Jacob in his strength, Jacob in his power. And that's, that's conveyed in the firstborn. And that's what the firstborn represents is the, is the youth and the power and the vitality of Jacob. And this is how he starts out. And he starts out preeminent in dignity. That is, he is the most respected of all the sons. And he is the one with the most power, the most influence within among the sons. This is Reuben. But he forfeits that. Why does he forfeit that? How does he forfeit that? Okay, okay. Uh, to be brutally honest about it, he went in to his father's concubine and had sexual relations with his father's concubine. In doing so, as we studied at the time back there in chapter 35, where it is, uh, in doing so, he is, he is seeking to overthrow his father's will and ensure his own dominance or preeminence. But he was already preeminent. And this is the thing that's striking to me, is he already had preeminence in power and in dignity. He was the firstborn. And the right of the firstborn was his. And it is not Jacob's favoritism to Joseph that overthrows Reuben. It's Reuben's own lack of self-control. He says he was uncontrolled as water. And he went up to my bed and he defiled it. And he says he, and then he apparently he turns to the other brothers and says, uh, kind of in a despairing way to them, uh, uh, he went up to my couch. So he, for first he's addressing Reuben directly, and then he apparently direct, uh, addresses the others. But, but the point that I want to make here is that Reuben was apparently fearful, as we talked about at the time, that he was going to lose his preeminence. And he was, in fact, going to lose his preeminence. But what caused him to lose his preeminence was not the favoritism towards Joseph. Joseph was no threat to his preeminence. The real threat to his preeminence was his own lack of self-control. 
And that's what led to his overthrow. And so he loses his position as the firstborn. So he has neither the preeminence and the power and the influence that ultimately uh, uh, comes down to Judah, uh, nor does he get the double blessing which Joseph got <coughs> through, his, through the adoption of Joseph's two sons. But it all happened because of his lack of self-control. And I was, as I was thinking about that, I think, how many stories can you and I think of? of people to whom God has given great privilege and great honor and great preeminence and they have forfeited it simply through their lack of self-control. You know, we could go through we could go through a whole litany of names that we, you know, that we could pick off of the the front page of the newspaper in the last few years, you know, of politicians and sports figures and and various people who had tremendous privilege and tremendous opportunity given to them, placed in their hand, uh, obviously even by the Lord, and tremendous gift. And, and, and then through just their own folly and their lack of self-control, uh, they let their passions run wild and it results in their overthrow. You know, I think it... One obvious comes to mind is Tiger Woods. I mean, here's a guy who had everything. He had everything and he was at the top of his game. And maybe he will be at the top of his game again, but he will never have the preeminence that he once had because of his lack of self-control. How many politicians, congressmen, senators, presidents uh, who had great, Influence and great respect, but we've seen that destroyed because of their lack of self-control. It's a tremendous warning to us, isn't it? Of the dangers of not letting our passions and our lusts and our greed and our selfishness uh, rule our lives. Well, uh, so that's Reuben, and, and then we have uh, Simeon and Levi. And of course, the story with Simeon and Levi is because of the rape of Dinah, they went into the city of Shechem, they deceived the city of Shechem, they used the sacred rite of circumcision to deceive the people of Shechem, and they ultimately go in and they kill all the men in the city and they capture the women and the children. And even in the passage where the, the, uh, their uh, plundering of the city is described, this particular aspect of it isn't mentioned, but it is here in the prophecy uh, that they actually lamed the oxen. So they, they took the cattle and they took the, they took the sheep, the things that were advantageous to them, but they were not, they're not farmers. They don't, they don't uh, sow crops and things like that. So they need the oxen. Instead of killing the oxen or just letting the oxen, they just lamed them. They, they cut their tendons and left them there to die. And it's a picture of the, just the brutality of their anger and the intensity of their wrath. And Jacob says, I don't want any part of that. He says, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, uh, he says, let not my soul enter into their counsel. I don't want to be, I don't want to be part of, of that kind of counsel, of that kind of thinking, of that kind of mentality. And he says, I don't want my glory. I don't want my reputation associated with their assembly. I don't want anything to do with that. And I don't want, to, I don't want people to think of Israel as being that kind of a people. Because he's speaking prophetically there. See, he says, let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be uh, united with their assembly. It's like a prayer. So it's not simply that at the time he decried their act, which he did. He, 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 he spoke un, uh, against it when they did it. But beyond that, he doesn't want his glory. He doesn't want the nation of Israel to think and act the way Simeon and Levi acted. And he doesn't want Israel's reputation to be a reputation of being that kind of a nation. And for that reason, he says, I am going to disperse you in Jacob and I'm going to scatter you in Israel. Okay. Which means, quite simply, that they were not, that as tribes, they were going to be scattered out among the, na among the nation and they weren't going to have a 
cohesive identity uh, with, a, with a plot of ground like the other tribes are going to have. And that is, in fact, what happened. Simeon was turned out to be the smallest of all the tribes. At the time of the conquest, they had, or maybe it was the time of the Exodus, I forget, but, but they had like 20,000 uh, men compared with many, many uh, times, that, uh, times that many by the other tribes. So they were the smallest of the tribes. And when they actually get to the distribution of the, uh, of the, of the land of Canaan in the conquest, they're such a small tribe that they're not, they're just kind of incorporated into Judah. So they're given a number of cities in the territory, within the territory that's given to Judah. And over a period of years, they're just kind of assimilated into the tribe of Judah. And they just kind of lose their identity. They are dispersed within the nation. Now, a similar thing, but in some ways quite different, happens to the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi is also dispersed. They're not given a piece of land, uh, but they are dispersed and they are given, I think it's 40 cities throughout the entire land that the tribe of Levi is given uh, as theirs. But something unique or special happens to the tribe of Levi. And what's that? They're given the priesthood. So in one sense, they're given a real position of of honor or respect. Now, uh, why God chose to do one with Simeon and the other with Levi, I, you know, I have no answer and I didn't see any commentaries that could explain why God chose to do one with one and the other with the other. Uh, but but we still have the fulfillment of the prophecy that they are dispersed and they don't have uh, they don't have a land inheritance as the other tribes had. Okay. Now, because I would like to finish with our thoughts on Judah, I want to just kind of jump ahead here and, and go to uh, Zebulun and Issachar very briefly. It says of Zebulun in verse uh, 13, it says, He will dwell on the seashore. He shall be a haven for ships and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Uh, there's no real reference here to his influence within the nation or whatever. But the thing that characterizes him is this association with the sea. Now, what's kind of a paradox about this and a little difficult to understand is that the inheritance that the tribe of Zebulun actually gets is landlocked. OK, so on one side, I'm between them and the Mediterranean. Uh, you have uh, you have one tribe. I think it's Naphtali. And between them and this, what we think of as the Sea of Galilee, you have uh, another tribe. So they're really kind of they're close to the sea, but they're but they're really not on the sea. So the question is, what does that mean? And uh, it, it comes a little more clear when you read what Moses says about Zebulun and his prophecy in Deuteronomy 33, that, that they're going to be a very prosperous tribe. And a great deal of their prosper, uh, prosperity is going to come from the sea. What we do know about Zebulun is that the land that was given to them kind of sat right on or straddled or was adjacent to several of the major trade routes that went to the sea. So much of their prosperity comes from the trade that comes from the sea or from the oceans, uh, as Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 33. So this is apparently a reference simply to the fact that, that they're going to be a very prosperous tri tribe and that very much of that, a great deal of that prosperity is going to come from this international trade, etc., that has to do uh, with uh, sea travel and that sort of thing. Then we have the blessing of Issachar, which is in some ways an anti-blessing. He says, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw the resting place was good and the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. What we have with Issachar here is... Uh, we have kind of three aspects that are pointed out in verse 14. That is that he's the idea of strength. He's a strong donkey. Uh, the idea of resting and the idea of a beast of burden. OK, these three things come out there in verse 14. And then he elaborates on it in verse 15 when he says, when he saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and he became a slave at forced labor. Now, Issachar was given land up in the northern part 
of the land of Canaan. It's very good land, very rich land. And this is the land that they uh, that they were assigned, that they were given. But what's striking about Issachar during the period of the conquest is they really didn't fight for the land. It was theirs. They saw it was good and they kind of went up there and the Canaanites said, you can't have this unless you are slaves. And so they just submitted to slavery. So they submitted to the dominion of the Canaanites and instead of fulfilling God's will and God's purpose for them, that they would go in and conquer the land and take it and be free. They were just satisfied to live the easy life, so to speak, and just, you know, and just not fight, not struggle for this thing and just kind of let the Canaanites rule. So in the end, what you have with the, with the tribe of Issachar here at this point in their history is they're really not much better off than they were in Egypt. And when I think about Issachar, I think about the parallel that Issachar is with many of us as believers. Because Christ has gone to incredible, incomprehensible lengths to secure our liberty and our freedom from sin. He has defeated sin. He has conquered sin. And when we are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, we receive the power of the Holy Spirit and we are liberated from the power of sin. That is the emphatic message of Romans chapter 6. That sin will no longer have dominion over you. And yet, how many of us as Christians live our lives like Issachar because we don't want to struggle? We don't want to fight the fight that is necessary to experience the liberty that has been purchased for us in Christ. And so we end up living our lives, even though we are free from sin in Christ, we live our lives as though we were still slaves. And we bow our shoulders to the burden and become slaves at forced labor. When we get to Romans, of course, we'll study all about that and we'll understand the implications of the freedom we have in Christ and how we can experience that. And we'll talk about that when we get into our study of Romans. But, but it just it's a sobering thought to me how oftentimes... I don't lay hold of that liberty and that freedom that is offered to me in Christ. Well, let's go back then and look at Judah. And I'd like to spend the rest of our time talking about, uh, about Judah because it's a wonderful, a wonderful prophecy. It's the most substantial one. It's several verses long. And he begins, by, he begins simply by characterizing Judah in this elevated position. He says, you will, uh, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons will bow down to you. The first phrase there, your brothers will praise you, is a play on his name. The name Judah means praise. When Leah gave birth to Judah, she says, I'm gonna, now I'm going to praise the Lord. Okay, now I will praise the Lord. And his name means praise. And the idea here is that Jacob is making a play on Judah's name and he's saying, your brothers will praise you. But more than that, not only is he going to be honored and praised by his brothers, but he's going to be victorious over his enemies. The tribe of Judah's hand will be on the neck of his enemies. And then he says, your father's sons, to emphasize that it's not just Leah's sons, but all of his brothers, he says, will bow down to you. And so we get this picture of of Judah not only as revered or honored or praised by his brothers, but one whom his brothers serve. So it gives the picture of Judah ruling over his brothers. Okay, And this theme then is picked up in the following verses. Then we have verse 9. He says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares to rouse him up. It's a very difficult verse to uh, interpret and to translate. And, uh, uh, and commentators are kind of all over the place on this verse, as they are with the next verse, which is even more difficult to translate. Uh, but 
But there are a couple things that are clear. And if we'll just remember that this is poetry, so we don't want to overanalyze it before we've had a chance to just kind of let the thrust of the passage hit us. The one of the things that's clear is that is that Judah sees in uh, excuse me, Jacob sees in Judah this imagery of the lion. So this whole idea of the lion and the lion in in the ancient Near East is representative of of royalty. Okay, so oftentimes the lion is a picture uh, in the near Middle East of royalty. And so so the idea here is the idea of royalty. So coupled with the idea of his brothers bowing down in verse eight, we now have this sense of this idea of royalty associated with uh, Judah. And uh, and he's and he starts out as a whelp. He starts out as just a young lion, but he apparently grows into strength. So this is going to happen over a period of time, this this uh, experience of the lion. Um, he says, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. It's a very difficult passage, to a very difficult line to understand. Uh, a couple possibilities. Uh, actually, the uh, uh, Jewish, many Jewish scholars uh, saw in that uh, idea uh, that, uh, uh, let's see, how do they word it there? They say, um, from the prey of my son, you have gone up. Okay. And the idea is it's a reference to Joseph. It's a reference to Judah's exploitation of Joseph. And connected with that, they also see his exploitation of Tamar. But what stands out to us about Judah and what makes Judah's character so outstanding is not that he, not just that he mistreated his brother Joseph or that he mistreated Tamar, but that in both cases he righted the wrong. In both cases he went back and he made it right. And this is what makes his character so outstanding and which makes, it makes him so endearing to us. Not that he's a man who was flawless, but he's a man who dealt with his sin. So in the case of Tamar, he righted his wrong. In the case of Joseph, ultimately he rights his wrong and he takes, uh, takes the defense of Benjamin, ultimately, as we saw uh, in the narrative as we went through it. So these are some of the possible senses there or means of that passage. But what we need to understand, the main idea we want to get is this idea of the majesty and power and fearfulness of the lion is associated with Judah. And then we come to this classic verse. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so what we learn then is that, is that the royal dominion of the family, of the, of the nation of Israel, is going to be given to Judah. So it's not given to Reuben. He's forfeited it. He's not given it to Simeon or Levi, who are the next two born in order. He doesn't give it to them because of their anger and their violence, but rather it passes to Judah. And, and Judah doesn't actually get it until many years after this, right? Because it's not until the ascension of David to the throne that this passage even begins to be fulfilled. But the passage here is not talking about the beginning of the fulfillment of this. It's talking about the the end fulfillment, isn't it? Okay. So this is not just a reference to David. It is a reference to David and Solomon. But it goes beyond that and it looks to the end and it says that the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And the until there is not in, does not mean in the sense of, of the first action terminates with the second action. But rather, it is the sense that the first action is reaches its fulfillment and its completion in the second action. Okay, so in other words, that the scepter being in Judah reaches its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Shiloh. Now, the big question is, what is Shiloh? Now, it is not, uh, though some have uh, seen this and believe this to be true, it's not a reference to the city of Shiloh, okay, or the 
town of Shiloh. It was, that was significant during the time of the conquest. But by the time that Judah, uh, that the, the scepter actually comes to Judah, which is the reign of David, Shiloh is off the scene. It's a non-factor. Okay? So this is not a reference to the city of Shiloh, but appears to be a reference to a person. And both ancient and modern Jewish scholars and ancient and modern Christian scholars agree together that this is a reference to the Messiah. This is a messianic reference. Okay. And and the name Shiloh, how how it should be translated or interpreted, the name Shiloh uh, depends. It's it's very difficult. This is exceedingly difficult for the Hebrew scholars to work this out. So I can't uh, I can't even go into all that. If I did understand it, okay, but but there are a couple main thoughts that kind of run through the interpretations. The one is that it's a reference to the man of peace. Okay, so it's when the man of peace comes that this rule of of Judah will be completed. Or the other possible is, and and this comes from uh, uh, comes from uh, a verse in. Ezekiel, which uses very similar language to this verse. It's the idea, not just of the man of peace. Uh, <laughs> there you go. It's not just a reference to the man of peace, uh, but it's a, a reference to the one to whom it belongs. So the idea is that until Shiloh comes, so the one to whom it belongs comes. Got him there? Great. Uh, until they... One to whom the crown comes, the scepter will be with Judah. Okay. So, whatever the case is, this is clearly a messianic passage. Okay. Well, very quickly then, we get these last verses that, that seem uh, so oblique to us and hard to understand. But he says, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Well, let me ask you, how many of you would tie your donkey to a vine, to a grapevine? Probably every one of you because you're not very smart, right? Okay. <laughs> Why would you not tie your donkey to a vine? Well, donkeys are strong. Okay. And they will rip their vine. Okay, what else? And they'll eat it up. They'll eat it up. They'll eat it up. Okay. Now, Judah doesn't care. This verse here is represents the overwhelming abundance of the Judaic kingdom. That the, the grapes are so plentiful that you can tie your donkeys to the vine and if they eat them, if they tear them out of the ground or if they eat the vines themselves, it doesn't matter because we got so much of it, it doesn't matter. We've got so much of it, we wash our garments in it. It's like water to us. So the picture here is of the overwhelming, overflowing abundance of the kingdom of Judah. Now, we have a little bit of that in the reign of Solomon. But the picture that's being presented for us here is not just the reign of David and the reign of Solomon, but the picture that's being painted for us here is this is this Messianic picture that this Shiloh will come. The one to whom the crown belongs is going to come. The, the man of peace is going to come. He's going to rule. He's going to be this, this beautiful, majestic, terrifying lion like the, like the, the lion in the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe where... Uh, Lucy first finds out about Aslan, Aslan the lion and she says, is he safe? And the answer she gets is, of course he's not safe. Okay? This is the picture of the lion. Okay? Majestic lion. This great lion is going to come and, and, and the, the nations are going to be obedient to him. And, and the, his kingdom is going to be overflowing in abundance. Now, is it any wonder to us that on this day, Palm Sunday that we commemorate. That on that first Palm Sunday, when the people heard that the promised Messiah was approaching Jerusalem, 
that they grabbed their palm branches and they grabbed their garments and they went out up onto the mountain to welcome it into the city and they did it singing Hosanna and praise to God because this is what they thought was going to happen. And it is going to happen. Of course, Jesus knew that it wasn't going to happen at that moment and there were other things that had to intervene, which is why in the midst of that great crowd of celebration, He Himself was weeping. But, but this is what was happening. This is what they thought was happening. And this is the promise that they were looking forward to. So although their timing was misplaced, their worship was not. Okay? Well, next week, uh, well, actually two weeks, Ron will have us next week, and then uh, two weeks we'll pick up uh, with the last part of the chapter. Thank you.